All right, John 17 has historically been called what? The high priestly prayer. It's, the structure's easy to follow. If you've got your electronic device, your Bible, look real qu- quickly. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. Then you've got 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. Then you've got 20 through 27, Jesus is praying for those that will believe through the immediate disciples, which is you and me, the church, down through the centuries to this very day. Here's what we've done so far in John 17. We've looked at the big idea of the whole passage, which is found in verses 1 through 5. And what's the big idea? Knowing God, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. All of Romans 17 is, is coming into knowing God and is kicking out from knowing God. That's the big idea. We're to know God with our minds and we're to know God with our hearts. We're to know God with our understanding and we're to know God with our feelings. We're to know God with clarity, and we're to know God with realness. In fact, a Scottish, the last person you'd expect this kind of quote coming from, a Scottish theologian said, you and I are to be intelligent mystics. And if you know anything about Scottish people, that's just, that's just weird that he would even say that. Intelligent, yeah, mystic, yeesh. An intelligent mystic is knowing God. That's what we saw the first time. Second, then, we looked at knowing God in the real world, 6 through 11. We looked at our complicated and confusing relationship with the world. What are we supposed to do with the world? Knowing God in this world, are we supposed to escape from the world or embrace the world? You could almost go down the line in Waco and any other church and say, well, that church embraces the world. That church escapes the world. It's usually an either or. You got books and theologies that talk about, man, just circle the wagons and you know, what was the movie, M. Night Shyamalan's movie? The Village, We Become a Village. I don't know why I didn't remember. <laughs> Thank you for helping me. Or we embrace the world. We drink the same values. We drink from the same idols. John 17 says you do both. What? So if you need to still work that out, go back and, and go on the website and, and listen to that sermon. Uh, third thing. Knowing God is both or includes both awe and intimacy. That's verses 11b through 16. Look at how Jesus addresses God in 11b. Holy Father. Holy, knowing God is awe. Father, knowing God is intimacy. Today we look at how to know God. How do you know God with clarity in your mind and realness in your heart? Verses 17 through 19. Richard Sibbs is a Puritan, or was a Puritan, and he's, a, he's the good kind of Puritan. There are good Puritans and there are bad Puritans. You want to read the good Puritans. Sibbs, read everything he has. He uh, lived in the 1500s and the early 1600s. He was called the sweet dropper. Because when he opened his mouth, honey came out. All of London called him the heavenly doctor Sibbs of the grace of God. That when he preached... He preached the grace of God and he preached the good news of what Jesus had done and he'd done so in such a powerful way that it was soothing and it was sweet and it was healing to the souls and the hearers and it was encouraging and comforting and it put people back together again. Well, he said this, measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. 
The sun is always shining. Always. On the darkest day, the sun shines. It's just some clouds get in the way. The hymn we sang, it's our own blindness and the stuff, the darkness in our own life that keeps us from seeing the sun. Not that the sun isn't blazing. What has the power to blow the clouds away in your life? What has the power to set the sun's light and warmth on your soul? Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You know, sanctify is mentioned three times in this passage, 17 through 19. Sanctify, that word, at its base elemental definition. It comes from a root word. It's a root word that this comes from. So if you got to get this word to sanctify, mentioned three times, sanctification three times, it comes from this root big word that is an adjective of God called holy. God is holy, and that's where this word comes from. What does it mean for God to be holy? What it means is that God is infinitely beautiful, infinitely breathtaking, infinitely full of wonder, infinitely worthy, infinitely incomprehensible, infinitely and uncomparably not like us. And that is such a good thing. Because usually we relate to God based on how we act and treat people and how people treat us. So if you grow up in an abusive situation, you have an abusive God. If God is hard and driving and performance-driven, which is what our hearts are like, we project that onto God, and God's not like that. Thank God He's not like us. He's other. He's different. He's separate from everything created. In the Revelation, at the seat of the, the, the whole book is centered on God's throne. And God's throne is God's holiness. And it's the center of the book. It's the center of reality. It's the center of meaning itself. And then there's this incredible image around the seat of holiness on the throne, which is where God sits. There's this sea of glass that surrounds the throne. And the sea of glass is uncrossable waters. It's unnavigable waters. There are waters you can't swim across. There's waters you can't get across. To be sanctified is to sail the sea of glass. The original language in the lexicon say sanctified means to be set apart for God. It means to be included in the inner circle and counted as a part of God's inner circle of holiness. If C.S. Lewis was here, C.S. Lewis would say you are being welcomed into the inner ring. You now belong. You now have been brought into the seat of all meaning and the seat of all life. You've been brought into the holiness of God, set apart for God. To be sanctified is the meaning of life. It means to know God. It's to become your true self. And it's to participate in the mission 
the meaningful mission of life, which is what we're going to look at. It's the clouds actually blowing away and the sun shining on you. That's what it means to be sanctified. But what has the power to do this? What has the power for you to know God? What has the power to blow the clouds away? What has the power to make you your true self? What has the power to actually engage you in the meaningful mission of life? Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. A better translation is sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What's the power? Jesus says it's one thing. And he prays that God unleashes this one thing on you. He is talking in an intra-Trinitarian conversation with his Father. And he is praying that God releases this power on you and me. What is it? His words. His word. Many theologians today, right now, if you were, if you were studying hermeneutics and homiletics... Everyone's obsessed with it. Everybody's addicted with it. Hermeneutics is studying the understanding of the Bible. Homiletics is how to communicate it. This study that's going on in all the journals, all the seminaries, all the the scholarly work that's being done, and it's now pushing itself into more of a pop realities of these works. Everyone is obsessed with speech act theory. It's breaking out of the theological and the biblical world. It's actually going into the literary world and the rhetorical world. It's infecting everything. And it's an old theory, but it's just kind of being rediscovered and it's greatly impacting everybody. It's called speech act theory. You know what speech act theory says? Words. Words not only convey information. Words get things done. Your words not only communicate information, your words actually do things. Get things done. They impact. They accomplish. God's speaking and God's acting are the same thing. God's words are God's actions. The Bible is the active, personal presence of God. The Bible is not conveying information. It's not about how you live your life and it's not about here's the 10 steps to do this and it's not a handbook on Christian living. The Bible is not about spiritual information. The Bible is God speaking, God acting, God working, God getting things done. Oh God, where are you? Why are you so far from me? Why are you so detached? Why are you so distant? To my problems, to me. And God says, I'm not. I'm here. I'm at work in my word. Come to me in my word. Oh God, life is so meaningless. Life is so painful. Life is so depressing. I'm angry. I'm fearful. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. I'm stuck in life. What do I do? 
God says, I'm here. I'm at work in my word to work in you. Come to me in my word. But oh God, how do I change? I mean, I need others more than I love them. I, I'm not a generous person like Bradley was talking about. I, I take money and I use it to control my life and give me security or I use it to spend on my pleasures. I, I'm not a generous person. I want to love more. I want to love you more. I want to trust you more, God. I want you to work in my life. I want to be involved in participating in what you're doing in people's lives. I just don't seem to move on. I seem to struggle with the same things. I seem to have starts and stops and fits and, and I can't ever seem to push ahead a little bit. And God says, I work. I act. I heal. I put back together. I meet with. I equip. I empower you in my word to work in your life, to heal your life, to meet with you in your life. Come to me in my word. God's word is his personal. When we come to the scriptures, we are coming to God's personal, active presence. Let there be light. That does not just convey information. That gets things done. And you come to God's active, personal presence right now for you. It's right now for you. His active, personal presence right now for you. And also for your family. And for that crazy neighbor. And for your angry boss that you think's a jerk. And for your struggling children. And for your lost friends. And for those impossible and pleasant places. God's word is God in action. There's a guy, well, let's do this. Look at verse 18. I want you to notice that being sent into the world, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Notice that being sent into the world, being involved in people's lives, being a part of what God is doing in people's lives, being a part of a meaningful mission. You want meaning in your life. Here's a meaningful mission. Being a part of that is the result of God's words at work. How did Jesus send the original disciples into the world? As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. How did he do that? And how does he send you and me into the world? By his words. His words make you a missional person. When God acts through his words, meaning comes into your life. When God acts through his words, mission comes into your life. When God acts through his words, you actually begin to participate in God's work in other people. Because what happens is when God acts in his words in your life. You are no longer a lawyer about who God is. You are now a witness and you now speak those words into other people's lives. And those words are active, living, loaded with power. So ask God to work in your life. 
I mean, get specific. Ask him. Where do you need him to work in your life? Ask him to work in your life. But here's the key. Ask. But now don't just sit around and wait for him. Ask. And go where he unleashes his life and his presence and his work in your life. Go to his word. Read his word. Come to a sermon. And let him now wait on him to work in your life that way. It's basically like this. All we're asking, all God is asking us to do is that there is a powerful, fast locomotive, more powerful than a locomotive, and it's not Superman, and it's coming down the tracks. And all he's saying is saying, listen, this is all you got to do. Is get hit. Ask him to work in your life. And then go where he works. Go where he's active. Go where he unleashes heaven on you. Go to his words. I've been doing ministry. I calculated on Friday. I've been doing active ministry since I was a sophomore in college. So that's 30 years now. Of evangelism, discipleship, spiritual leadership, some form of preaching, teaching, communicating the scriptures, some form of pastoral care and helping people in tough situations, myself included, some form of active ministry, campus, pastoral, some form for 30 years. And I can tell you, hands down, from personal experience of 30 years of doing ministry, when God works through his word in my life, I want to share those words with others. And I actually do. And every single person that I have seen God's words work in someone's life, they do too. God's word is powerful enough to make you a missional person who takes the words that you have been given and have come alive in your heart and you turn around and you pass these living words on to other people. Because the living words do the work. Timothy Ward, author of Words of Life, says, to encounter the words of Scripture is to encounter God in action. So when you come to the Scripture, you're coming to a God in action, a God who's working, a God who's doing, a God who's getting things done. So look at the action. Look at verse 19. Here's the action. And for their sake I consecrate or sanctify, same word used three times, myself, that they may be sanctified in or by the truth. So here's what's happening. Jesus crosses the uncrossable waters. Jesus navigates the unnavigable waters. But he does so from the wrong direction. He's not traveling to the land of holiness He's coming from the land of holiness to the land of unholiness. To a land that's just hurting and riddled with the sinister power of sin. To a land of people who are just enslaved in the fear of condemnation and judgment. To a land of people who are diminishing by the minute in shame. To almost non-existence. He comes and crosses unnavigatable waters. That he actually comes to a place that's addicted to the self, addicted to the need to be our own savior. And he crosses the unnavigatable waters, the uncrossable waters, to sanctify himself, 
which means to take your place. So he sets himself apart, and in setting himself apart, he says, I, I, I will be their obedience. My life will be consecrated and sacrificed, sanctified, set apart for holiness. I will love God. I will love people perfectly for them. And then I will die and my death will take all their condemnation and all their shame and all their sin and every burden that holds them down and I will eat it and kill it for them. I sanctify myself for them. And so now when you and I read the Gospels, you know what we're reading? We're reading someone sanctifying himself for you. So when he obeys, it's your obedience. When he loves people perfectly, it's your love for people perfectly now. When he sacrifices himself and diminishes himself and expends himself emotionally and physically and spiritually to where he's hardly nothing and self-sacrificial love, he's, that's yours now. When you read the Gospels, you are watching a sanctified life that's now yours. You're watching your life sail the sea of glass to the holiness of God. Amen.